Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. For the next three hours, we're talking with you about everything that happened on a very busy day at 866-997-4748. By the way, if you're enjoying all of our music we play on the show, thank you for all the nice comments for last night's nonstop tribute to Christine McVie. We're posting all of the uh, playlists every day at our Facebook uh, fan page. So you can always come by and uh, and fill up your own playlist with all the junk we play here. That's uh, Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang on Sirius XM Progress, something like that. You can find us on Facebook. What a day. I'm so glad you're here. We have a great one tonight. Chris Hauselt's our executive producer in South Carolina. Thea Harper's our associate producer in Brooklyn. Professor Corey Brechneider will be here on the Oath Keeper Stuart Rhodes and what his conviction for seditious conspiracy means for other right-wing fascists you might know, uh, George Gale will be back on our show. He's a community organizer and activist, formerly executive director of People's Action. We had him on a few months ago talking all about rural voters in the Democratic Party. He's got a great piece in Newsweek called Democrats Make Small Inroads for Big Results. And then there's the news of the day. And what a day it was, man. Twitter, which is still a thing. I just saw Nazis was trending, uh, both because of Kanye defending them and Indiana Jones punching them. So there's something for each side of the line. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin voted against adding sick leave into the rail workers deal to avoid a nationwide strike. But Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, John Kennedy and Mike Braun all joined Democrats in voting yes. It was a weird day. Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders fist bumped at one point. The 11th Circuit Court is thrown out Trump Judge Aileen's Cannon's decision and has canceled the special master review of the Mar-a-Lago documents. It was a it was a bad day for Trump in many ways. President Biden hosted uh, France's Emmanuel Macron in the first official state visit of his presidency. We found out that in about six months, the Supreme Court is going to decide whether Joe Biden's student loan debt relief plan, which he ran on, and more people voted for him than any candidate in the history of American elections, and he won, and he tried to implement it, well, six right-wing people nobody voted for will decide if you get to have that or not. You might have heard from our friends over at Warner Brothers, Chris Saliza was dropped by CNN today. Um, furthermore, CNN, even more shocking to me, is going to end all live programming on the HLN network. They, they canceled Morning Express with Robin Mead, who's been at the channels for 21 years. Oh, and apparently, I don't know if you heard this, um, Kanye West went on some show and said some things. We're not sure what that was about. Uh, we'll try to get you more information. 
we won't be playing his audio. But we got a great one tonight, and I'm so glad you are with us. 866-997-4748. Let's do a show. Before I begin, I got we have a new advertiser, new new live read. This is uh, Chris. What, we, this just came in late. I'll I'll um, I'll just okay. Normally yeah, we do this later in the show. That's okay. I'm happy we have sponsors here. Uh, I'll just read it. The copy. Um, they say you're crazy, but you know that's just another globalist hoax to control the media. Introducing Especially Hitler by Kanye West, the new fragrance for discriminating men. Go DEFCON 3 on your old cologne with a clean, godly, real American scent the underground Illuminati media mafia can't suppress. Especially Hitler. You'll smell so strong, you'll want to invade Poland. Look, nobody controls you, so don't be a slave to bad cologne. That's a choice, you know. Kanye's explained that that was always a choice. It's a new world order in men's fragrance, the one true men's cologne, and there's no room for dual loyalty. And it's all brought to you by the artist formerly known for being an artist, Kanye West, the one man to make Pete Davidson look dignified. Order now and get a free sample of Kanye's new vanilla-scented candle line, White Smells Matter. Did I mention that's free? It is, because Kanye's not the greedy one. That's the lawyers. You know that, right? He's explained it. Oh, and if any Soros cabal pushes the hoax that you don't smell right, deny it. After all, when you're with Kanye West, you got a lot of experience at denying things happened especially Hitler, because crazy's got nothing to do with it. Who? I, I didn't know he had it so rough if he's advertising on our show now, but uh, <laughs> should give you a rough idea of the news we had today. We'll talk about Kanye West, no doubt, throughout the show. I don't want to play his audio. I'm not even convinced they're not just trolling decent people. What I want to talk about is 10 years ago and right now. Let's go back through the mist of time to a place called 2012. Now, now here, here's my, my scene I'm setting. Back then, the Republican Party has an election, and they run these far right-wing candidates who were very electable for the GOP primaries, not so electable in a general election. Remember the names of the all-star roster? Richard Murdoch, Josh Mandel, Todd Aiken, Christine O'Donnell? Of course you don't. They ran against women's rights. They spread fear of immigrants. They pushed a right-wing Christianity that had nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And they were all slaves to big money donors. Now, look, I'm always a fan of watching right-wing fascists take big donations from capitalists and then um, redistribute the wealth and not get elected. But the GOP lost big in 2012, even with millionaire at birth Mitt Romney who, like Bush and Cheney and Limbaugh and Gingrich, had supported sending drafted young men to die in Vietnam, but avoided going himself. You see, Mitt Romney, 10 years ago, failed in his quest to be all things to know people, and the Democrats did really well. Barack Obama was reelected. And then the RNC converged to ask itself, why? I wouldn't call it a come-to-Jesus moment, because that would involve reading the Jesus parts of the book they pretend to follow, and if they did that, they couldn't be Republican anymore. No, no, no. It was a come-to-Reince moment. Reince Priebus, former RNC head. Remember him? That reminds me, all men over 50 should get their Reince Priebus checked once a year. Reince came up with the famous Republican autopsy report, which asked, hey, what drove away women and minorities and young voters? And how can we reach women and minorities and young voters? Well, I could have told you 10 years ago, and I can tell you right now, and I'm not a woman, a minority, or a young person. Back then, 10 years ago, it was really five basic things voters didn't like about the Republican Party. Roe v. Wade, big money, racist bullshit, 
toxic male energy and fake Christians. That was it in 2000. Roe v. Wade, they promised to end it. Murdoch was talking about rape victims being forced by the state to carry their rapist child. Didn't test well with the people who vote in the general election. It was big money in politics. Mitt Romney embodied privilege with no appreciation of its own privilege. It was racist bullshit 10 years ago. Scapegoating immigrants, talking about invasions at the border. Even Mitt resorting to birtherism against Obama on the campaign trail. Oh, it was it was toxic male energy. Todd Akin saying women's bodies have ways of shutting down a pregnancy if it's a legitimate rape. <laughs> and it was fake Christians that did the Republicans in 10 years ago because Jesus never said anything about abortion or gay marriage or anything against birth control. Jesus commanded you to welcome the stranger and care for the least of us. I know, right? Who let that guy into the Bible? So <laughs> 10 years ago, the RNC had their little commission with Reince Priebus to figure out where they went wrong. Do you remember this? They produced their autopsy report. Let me quote it. The GOP today is a tale of two parties. One of them, the gubernatorial wing, is growing and successful. The other, the federal wing, is increasingly marginalizing itself. And unless changes are made, it'll be increasingly difficult for Republicans to win another presidential election in the near future. Young voters are increasingly rolling their eyes at what the party represents. And many minorities wrongfully think that Republicans do not like them or want them in the country. That was their self-diagnosis 10 years ago. And they were right. And the Republican Party took this report and ignored all of it and nominated Donald Trump. And they lost the popular vote in 2016 and then suffered humiliating losses in 2018, 2020, 2022. The GOP ignored all of it and nominated Trump. And Reince Priebus ignored all of his own report, too. And he became Trump's chief of staff. And it's not that the Republican friends of ours weren't capable of understanding what went wrong. It's that they couldn't actually acknowledge what went wrong because the policies that are popular with the majority of people in this democracy are policies the Republican donors do not like. So cut to 2022, the election we all just lived through. What happened? Uh, well, the Republican Party ran far right candidates who were very electable GOP primaries, but not so electable in the general election. Again, Doug Mastriano, Carrie Lake, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters. What did they do? They did the same thing the All-Star Squad did in 2012. They ran against women's rights. They spread fear of immigrants. They pushed a right-wing Christianity that had nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And they were slaves to big money donors. And now the RNC has converged to ask itself why. I know, right? Just what 2022 needs. Another shitty reboot. The RNC is tapping about a dozen people to serve in what they're calling a Republican Party Advisory Council to go through the motions of pretending to learn what happened. It's, it's post-mortem to Electric Boogaloo. The all-stars for this squad, um, former Trump White House advisor Kellyanne Conway, who was his third campaign manager, uh, evangelical leader Tony Perkins, and Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters. They're going to get together and produce a report that could, wait, whoa, whoa, wait. Blake, Ma Blake, is this Blake Masters? The Blake, Blake Masters is on this committee. The creepy gun loving venture capitalist with no charisma. Blake Masters. What? They're asking Blake Masters to do a report on why Blake Masters and the other Blake Masters is, is, is lost. That's, that's like asking an oath keeper to do a report on why am I in jail? 
That's like asking Kanye West to do a report on why is Kim Kardashian dating other men? Guys, I can tell you again, like I told you 10 years ago, it's the big five things voters didn't like about the GOP. Same as 12. But, you know, Blake Masters literally embodies all five of those things. Roe v. Wade? Blake Masters called abortion demonic. He called it a religious sacrifice. He lost in Arizona on that message. It's big money in politics, just like 2012, except instead of Mitt Romney, it's Peter Thiel, that billionaire. Blake was his hand-picked assistant-winged monkey. Peter Thiel put $15 million into making his yes-man pass for a public servant. Like 2012, it was racist bullshit. Blake Masters was pushing white supremacist replacement theory. I'm sorry, white replacement theory and white nationalism. He blamed gun violence on black people. Really, Google it. He, he black people. That's who he blamed gun violence. I, I, racist. And, and then fake Christians, because Christian nationalists aren't Christian. And Jesus never said anything against abortion or gay marriage, against birth control. He commanded you to welcome the stranger and care for the least of us, all things you guys hate. And of course, toxic male energy. Whoo. Blake Masters got a PhD. Did you see his gun ad? Did you happen to see the Blake Masters gun ad? Oh, it's amazing. Blake drives his BMW alone in the Arizona desert. And then he gets out and it's three minutes of him shooting a gun with a silencer near the border and explaining why he likes to have a silencer when he's shooting at the border. Shocking this didn't test well. After a year of mass shootings, shocking in a country where people think deregulating silencers is a dangerous and stupid idea. Blake comes up in a German car with a German gun for you slow folks in the back in case you don't really get the message he's sending here. I mean, you've got to see the ad. It radiates creepy incel with skins dying, drying in the basement. I'm like, dude, Blake, Blake, you're running against a literal astronaut. OK, don't try to play butch up. And your name's Blake. Bring good ideas instead. See, for years, the media keeps waiting, don't they, for the Republican Party to say, hey, you know what? Let's let's back away from our fringe. We're not getting young people. What are we what are we going to do? We're not getting more popular with with African-Americans and, and women can't stand it. We maybe maybe the time's finally come to, like, look at the polls and change our policies and try to have policies that make us more popular with the majority of voters. The media keeps telling us this will be the year, but they can't. The Republican Party can't do that. They can't start evolving to be more popular with voters in a democracy. They used to be a conservative party with a white nationalist fringe, but now they're a white nationalist party with a conservative fringe. It's not even a fringe. It, it, it's, not, it's like a phantom thread. <laughs> they're not going to change. They can't. They can't change because of their owners and because of their voters. Their owners, they just want taxes cut for the super rich. They want relaxed regulation on pollution. Their voters, their voters just want them to say and do mean shit and pretend it's somehow Christian. And that's what they're going to do. They're not going to try to get more popular with working Americans. They're going to go investigate Hunter Biden. They're going to try to shut down the government. They're going to scream about trans girls in junior high sports. They're going to try to incarcerate women who have abortions. They're going to pretend that Donald Trump can hang with Nazis, pedophiles and Jew haters and pretend that that's patriotic, not creepy and kosher. You already know they're not going to take their Republican Party advisory council seriously. They're Kellyanne Conway and Blake Master. They're hiring election deniers to root out the truth of why they lost an election. And you all know what's going to happen. 
they're going to give a bunch of proposals to try to win. And in every evolving democracy, they can't slow down. With progress, they can't stop. They're going to do it. They're going to try to do it at least. And they'll give a bunch of proposals to try to win proposals they don't believe in for a report they won't read to appeal to a population they don't really care about representing. And the party will ignore the report. They'll ignore all of its recommendations just like they did 10 long years ago. And what'll they do? Well, (laughs) they'll figure out new ways to keep on winning with just right-wing Christian people. And boy, they'll have their ways. Oh, and speaking of which, uh, this just came in. Your polling place just shut down. So you're going to have to travel a bit farther to vote next time on a much longer line. If you even want to put yourself through that. Yeah, I don't know why you would. That's how they do it, folks. They're not going to learn anything. They're not allowed to. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So you're hearing a lot about a certain phrase this week, seditious conspiracy. And of course, we're focusing quite a bit on the guilty verdict against Stuart Rhodes. Good job, by the way. But what does it mean? And how isolated is the conviction of the Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes, for seditious conspiracy in the January 6th terrorist attack on our Capitol? And does it mean anything beyond just this one conviction? Um, I am so thrilled to get Professor Corey Brettschneider here anytime. And uh, wow, are we glad tonight. Corey, of course, is a professor with a PhD in politics from Princeton and a law degree from Stanford who enriches the minds of students at Brown University. You've read his stuff in the New York Times and Time Magazine. You should own his book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Professor Corey Brettschneider, welcome back. Uh, thanks, John. Looking forward to talking as always. Thank you. Um, I was quite frankly thrilled that the conviction of uh, Stuart Rhodes this week, I, I kind of wasn't, I, I, I was holding out hope for it, but I, I didn't actually think that he'd ever get a conviction. He never actually entered the Capitol during the riot. And that to me is very telling that someone who didn't actually take part physically in the violence, but directed it can be held criminally liable. Yeah, he was, I think, kind of acting like a general is one way to put it outside and um, and directing, you know, his troops, really. Uh, You'll remember, of course, from seeing the footage on HBO, various documentaries, various news programs that, you know, some of these guys didn't look like the others to use the old Sesame Street uh, 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 way, you know, way of teaching kids. Uh, to differentiate between things that are going on. And, you know, that's worth doing when you watch those videos because some of these guys 
you know, really are marching in what uh, is termed by the prosecution stacks. They're traveling together the way military formations were. They show real training and coordination. And he was outside, uh, but he was, you know, masterminding it all. And so there are tapes of him and transcripts of him talking to really his troops who definitely do enter the building. And, you know, when you're directing uh, uh, an attack on the Capitol, you're as liable, even if you're the general watching from the field above, you're as you're as much a part of the invasion as the people who are going on the front lines. And, and that was what was happening here. Uh, you know, I, I shared, too, like the worry that he wouldn't be convicted, even though the evidence looks so strong. But thankfully, mm-hmm. he did a lot to undermine himself. He took the stand and came across as, I think, somebody not credible and and very guilty, among other things. Well, I mean, this is the most significant conviction yet from the Justice Department's investigation of the attack of January 6th of last year. And, of course, seditious conspiracy is the most serious charge they've brought so far in any of these 900-plus criminal cases uh, from the investigation of the attack. Now, we've talked about how it's not prosecuted many times. Seditious conspiracy has a maximum penalty of 20 years in jail. I believe it traces back to the Civil War, and it's only been used a handful of times. The last time there was any kind of real successful prosecution for sedition was in 1995 with the militants who were plotting to bomb uh, several New York City landmarks back then. But lost in all of this is, what is the actual definition for seditious conspiracy? I mean, I know it when I see it, but what is the <laughs> official guideline for this, uh, for this crime? I mean, I think the Civil War is a good place to start. I mean, the purpose of the of the legislation that's passed after the Civil War is to stop another Confederate rebellion from taking over the country. So there has to be, my understanding is, a requirement that you are trying to undermine the execution of the laws some, in some fundamental way, um, that you're planning on doing that, and that you take uh, violent actions, uh, you know, for that purpose. And, and that's what this jury said, that, that all of those things were happening here. I mean, there was a text message he sent days earlier to his legions saying, we are not getting through this without a civil war. Prepare your mind, body and spirit. And he put this in a text yeah. and hit send. So we know he's not that bright and he probably thought it was going to work. But I mean, Corey, isn't this guy a, a Yale law grad? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just gonna how, say, not, how do you I go from being a Yale law grad to being a foot soldier terrorist for the star of Celebrity Apprentice? Right. I mean, in some ways, he's a, certainly a moral idiot. And, you know, there's a kind of arrogance and narcissism to him, like basically trying to direct his lawyers to do things that were extremely damaging, including taking the stand, which criminal defendants are almost always told not to do because they're not going to mm-hmm. come across in the way they think. They are, and that's certainly what happened here. But yes, he went to Yale Law School. He researched, uh, you know, the, these matters in depth, and you know, did well enough certainly to pass uh, there. And he's kind of weird history. You know, he starts out really as a libertarian, anti uh, George Bush the second, George Bush Jr. Uh, activist, worrying about rendition. CIA, you know, bringing people to black sites and torturing them and worrying Mm -hmm. that that's going to happen here. And then he, you know, sort of out of that develops the Oath Keepers, which are devoted to this idea in his view of preserving the Constitution, recognizing there's a kind of citizen oath 
to the Constitution. I wrote a book called The Oath in the Office. This is like the bizarro version of it, if I've ever seen any. But it's got, you know, superficially the same sort of idea that we have these obligations to the Constitution. Now, the way he views what happened is pretty interesting. He tried to use this in his own defense. He claimed um, that um, they were basically... At, they're not trying to undermine the government, but to try to defend the rightful government of Donald Trump. And that, you know, they were waiting for him specifically to invoke the Insurrection, insurrection right. Act. And that's why right. he had military weapons that were around him. And, uh, you know, that, that so he wasn't undermining the Constitution. He was defending and tried to use his trial to really promote his political philosophy. And thankfully, the jury saw right through that. Now, we always hear how it's a bad idea for someone like this to take the stand himself. But can you tell us why, beside the fact that he's a complete kook who's not credible? You know, I think, like, you know, if you're truly innocent in a murder investigation and, and the facts are going to come across in a way that's sincere and the jury's going to see some some element that would be hard for your representatives to, to express, maybe those are the instances where it would work. But here, this guy getting up and saying that he was really <laughs> trying to preserve the Constitution, while evidence after evidence just showed him directing an attack on the Capitol, I think the jury, you know, thought to themselves, and he tried to present himself, too, at the same time as a little wacky, a little out there. Yes, he went on Alex Jones and said all sorts of bizarre things, but in the end, he really, you know, is a is a, a decent person devoted to the rule of law. They, they just weren't going to buy that, but I think in his mind, you know, that is what he devoted his life to. He wanted to vindicate this ideology, and he just couldn't see things the right way the rest of us see them. And, you know, one of the – I should have said this in the beginning when, when you were talking about how rarely this is used. It's so important that it was used here because this really solidifies the idea that there was a, an attack, attack not just on the Capitol but really on American democracy. It was an attempted coup. And this guy had an ideology that justified it. And he took actions to really try to, to overturn our democracy. Mm -hmm. But seditious conspiracy. I mean, that's what's interesting. How how worried should Donald Trump be about the use of the C word? I mean, this brings the guilty verdicts one step closer to Donald Trump and Professor Eastman, does it not? Yeah, I mean, I I thought that was really interesting that certainly when it comes to John Eastman, I think there's a lot of parallels between the conviction of um Rhodes and the and the and the potential sedition of Eastman himself and the philosophy that Eastman was using uh in some ways was like less uh sound than than Rhodes. Rhodes had an idea that if Trump used the Insurrection Act, he'd be acting legally. And, and um, But what Eastman was doing was really relying on this theory that was just about pretending to follow the rules of the Electoral College and, and usurping those rules. So there wasn't even uh, any sound legislation that he was basing his argument on. Of course, I don't buy what Rhodes was saying, but I think Eastman's on less solid ground. And then there was the participation by him and Trump in the rally that That's cited right the attack on the Capitol. So, yeah, I could see a, a line from the Stewart prosecution, Stewart Rhodes prosecution to Eastman. Now, how about Trump himself? You know, to what extent was he in on any of these things? There was an attempt to show Rhodes getting in touch with the White House. He called the switchboard. If we could show that, I said we, really, the DOJ could show 
uh, a connection an ad that he got through, that there was communication or that mm-hmm. there was communication, for instance, by Roger Stone as a go-between who the uh, 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 Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers were bodyguards for, uh, then, then, then there would be a direct connection and, and the case against Trump would become go from you know, questionable to, to very strong. So there's the Eastman direction and there's this direction. What a moment to try a former president for seditious uh, conspiracy. That would be, of course, uh, world historic. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see that one happening. I think, as yeah, we discussed previously, not. Professor, I think, you know, conspiracy yeah. to defraud the United States or conspiracy to obstruct Congress are, are much mm-hmm. more likely. Um, yes, I do look yeah. forward to seeing how, how this plays out. And uh, I was glad that this conviction got so much attention. But I, I have to ask you about another case that's uh, <laughs> pretty terrifying and very of the moment, because as we all know, in June, uh, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who is an abortion provider, publicly revealed that she had provided uh, abortion care for a 10-year-old girl who was raped and impregnated by her attacker and who traveled from Ohio to Indiana for care. At the time, there was the six-week ban in Ohio. Now, apparently, the Attorney General of Indiana has asked the state's medical licensing board to discipline her over this what are they doing and is it legal it sounds very punitive and it sounds like a losing strategy legally and politically yeah i mean you know i think we're in some thorny issues here and the the fact that the right to abortion we would have talked about this only a few months ago i would have said there's a fundamental right to abortion in the united states constitution and no way can this state official do this, but we're in a different world where where the right to abortion has been wiped away by the Supreme Court, and these state laws are now legal. And what's happening here is the inevitable consequence of this, like who is going to be punished uh, for providing medical care? It's um, possibly going to be women, although that's a losing issue for the GOP, but it's it's likely going to be doctors, the same doctors who are being protested against and targeted by terrorists are now being targeted by public officials. And I don't I can't say, you know, legally that it's not possible. I could imagine a medical ethics uh, board pushing back and saying that it's the obligation of doctors to provide the best care possible. But that's not what the law is. The law prohibits abortion. And there might be, you know, just draconian efforts to try to enforce it. I think it's the natural consequence of getting rid of right to an abortion. You asked about politically, that's where I really think we've got to fight back. You know, this is the case to take the stand on that to show that the right to an abortion is a right to receive medical care and to receive appropriate mm-hmm. medical care and targeting doctors is really the way to, to undermine that right to receive the medical care that we all want and deserve. And that's the best thing to do here. I don't think I can argue on the strongest grounds the legal point, but I can say that this is the winning issue for us nationally. Well, I agree with you because here's what blows my mind about this, because the Indiana attorney general is not going after the doctor for performing an abortion, is he? he, he he's not even making it about abortion. He, he said they're going after it because... Um, he accused the doctor of uh, failing to uphold legal and Hippocratic responsibilities by exploiting a 10 year old little girl's traumatic medical story to the press for her own interests. I mean, this girl's name was never revealed. The doctor just came out and said, yeah, I had to do this because a 10 year old girl had to cross state lines. 
the attorney general said Dr. Bernard violated the law, her patient's trust and the standards for the medical profession when she disclosed her patient's abuse, medical issue and medical treatment. Corey, is this some serious weapons grade bullshit here that's going to blow up in their faces? Because I think (laughs) anything that keeps this story on the front pages is a good thing. I was going to say, you know, I was going to even interrupt that, that, I mean, the idea that that's what's going on here, that, that it's about disclosing information that's private is about as disingenuous as you can get. Because, of course, this case was only in the news because of attacks on this doctor by government officials and by right wing um, media and, and and others. That's what made her famous. Then they began to fight back by saying we have a right to provide this medical care. Now, their defense of themselves, um, uh, Bernard and her, her colleagues, is is triggering this fr- totally frivolous claim. I mean, the, this wasn't publicized. There was no uh, desire, I think, by this doctor to just, you know, make, make a celebrity out of her charge. And uh, instead, what's happened is that it was politicized by the right, also by the denial of the right to abortion. And then they're they're blaming the victim, really. Yeah. I mean, the doctor testified under oath and said she complied with legal requirements. Her lawyer told ABC News that they reported possible child abuse to social workers and state authorities. It seems like she covered all the bases. And then we found out a guy in Ohio was charged with raping and impregnating a 10 year old girl who the cops said traveled out of state to receive abortion care. So it it seems like this doctor may have even helped get the guy. And yet the Indiana attorney general is not going after the rapist. It's going after the doctor who helped the girl. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd even go to the beginning, which is that this is supposed to be a private decision between a pregnant person and their doctor, period, full stop. And it was under the Constitution. Now, after Dobbs, we're in this separate world of possible criminalization of abortions themselves, providing them, having one. And that's what's politicized this issue. And far from trying to respect the principle of privacy, the GOP, the, these politicians in Indiana are really just going crazy publicizing it. <laughs> Professor, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you about one more headline that popped up today. Um, as you know, the 11th Circuit has thrown out Trump appointee Judge Aileen Cannon's <laughs> pro-Trump decisions and canceled the special master Donald Trump demanded uh, to review the Mar-a-Lago stolen documents. How significant is this? Uh, and, and Conversations about this special master were very quickly vindicated today. Uh, you know, just to remind listeners, uh, Trump had argued that he had special privileges as a former president, executive privilege, to keep you know, these classified documents in his house as he wanted, he claimed they were somehow connected to attorney-client privilege as well. Those were ridiculous arguments. He's no longer the president of the United States. He doesn't have any executive privilege that travels with him when it comes to the ability to you have know, some privileges from private lawsuits, but not to keep classified documents in Mar-a-Lago you know, with lots of people you know, that we now know <laughs> walking in well, yeah. a less than secure facility. It was ridiculous. And the fact that this judge, Trump appointee judge, who clearly was just serving, you know, her her master <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than um, <laughs> uh, act, acting on the basis of law was absurd. And now a, a panel of judges, my understanding is that at least two of them are Trump appointees themselves, yep. uh, are calling it for what it was. It's ridiculous. And so, no, I don't think the Supreme Court's going to step into this. 
I think it's over. And again, this was Donald Trump trying to block the investigators from having access to the records. The special master, like Trump, has been sent back home. Professor Corey Bretschneider, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. What's the best way for our listeners to follow you? Still on the Twitter at BrettschneiderC or CoreyBrettschneider.com to read my work. You and me both. Let's go down with that ship. Thank you, Corey. <laughs> Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-GRIT. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome back. So I'm really excited to welcome our next guest back to the show. Let's get one thing clear. First and foremost, Republicans won the rural vote in 2022. I mean, it was solid. They they won it. They're going to keep on winning it. But we're getting more and more evidence every election that passes that some of the rural vote really is up for grabs, that Democrats are grotesquely mistaken if they think it's wise to cede the rural vote just to Republicans. And when Democrats do well with rural voters, they tend to do very well statewide. There's more and more signs that Democrats can reach these voters if they try. I'm so pleased to welcome George Gale back to the show. He's a community organizer and an activist, formerly executive director of People's Action, an org formed through the merger of five national organizations into one of the largest with more than a million volunteers and 600 paid organizers. And they work for poor and working class people in the U.S. Mr. Gale is the real deal on the ground talking to Americans. You can follow his fundamentals for organizing Substack and check out several seasons of the podcast, The Next Move. His new piece in Newsweek is a must read. I'm sharing it on my socials. Democrats make small inroads for big results. What a great pleasure to welcome George Gale back to the show. Hey, glad to be here. It was fun last time. So excited to see what we're going to talk about. It's glad to have you back. We got such great feedback from our listeners last time you were here. Um, You know, I've always said, sir, for a long time that the unsung hero of Barack Obama's victory in 2008 was Howard Dean and the 50-state strategy Mm. that actually trying, making the effort, committing resources to being competitive in states Democrats have written off for a generation can have a ripple effect unlike any that we've ever seen. And we saw Democrats do really well this last election in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Washington, showing them winning over rural areas and and, and making progress in North Carolina and Georgia. I mean, Lauren Boebert was almost voted out in Colorado. Right. I mean, I think... I mean, obviously, we came in with low expectations, but if you look at the races that were tight and the Democrats won and you dig into the numbers, the rural vote improved for Democrats and, you know, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four percent. And as you said, that's now three elections in a row that that's happened in 2018. We had single rural white women move 17 points towards Democrats and young white folks 18 to 29 move 16 points of democrats and now in this election we have numbers i'd love to get into all across the place so um yeah like you said we're not winning the rural vote we're not gonna win the rural vote anytime soon but if we could do a lot better and add up a bunch of blue dots and red places we're gonna win some elections well let's let's get into it because i thought one of the greatest events of the year was when we saw voters in kansas 
turn out in overwhelming numbers for a very progressive ballot initiative to essentially legalize abortion rights in their state. Uh, You point out in the piece that the rural vote showed up for progressive ballot initiatives as well in this election. Oh, I mean, big time. The rural vote helped win every single like abortion victory on, on the ballot. You can point to like significant numbers of rural voters. Again, in most of those cases, rural voters voted in majority against abortion rights, but the numbers were better in every state. They outpaced Biden's numbers. If you go back to the 2020 numbers. So you're like they're a, a strong contributor to this vote. But the same with things like Medicaid expansion, legalizing pot and other issues. Rural voters played a big role and they outpaced Biden's numbers. That's it. I mean, I keep telling everyone, look what just happened. Vermont, Montana and Kentucky after Kansas are all voting to protect the right to an abortion. There are people out there who are willing to hear and vote for points of view that are not what the Republican Party keeps pushing. Last I checked, those are not urban states. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and again, Medicaid expansion in South Dakota. I mean, the politicians. <laughs> the, and, and here's the thing. The Republicans, these folks vote for would never allow Medicaid expansion. So enough people got petitioned to get it on the ballot. And they essentially went over the heads of their own leaders. No. And South Dakota, I mean, doing some South pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, you look like they, you know, the Republican did really well, but this independent that they ran in the state who's more conservative than the Republican got a bunch of votes. But I think, you know, on the issues, of course, we know that our issues are winning issues, but we got to get them out there to people. So I think this notion that we're going to somehow pull together a coalition that doesn't include 30 to 40 percent of folks in states for rural voting for Democrat, like it's just it's just really fuzzy math. Yeah. I mean, as you point out in your piece, uh, South Dakota is our 10th most rural state and Missouri is our 20th most rural state and they legalized cannabis. I mean, what do you want to grab the DNC by the lapels by and scream to them? It just seems like there's such an untapped resource of voter power that that, you know, I've always thought Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren did so well on Fox News because yep. to some degree, those folks are starved for something of substance, telling them why you've been screwed by this economy. I think you just nailed it. Naming those two. I think folks are starving for somebody to like really tell them the truth. They're not like figuring out what's the best, you know, poll tested way to say this. They're saying there are villains. There are enemies that have created the situation that you're up against. And they're big corporations like you were talking about with your last guest. And we got to take them on. And then people say, like, wait, this guy, this woman's actually speaking the truth to me. But a lot of this stuff just feels too weak and too, like, safe. And people can smell that shit a mile away. Excuse me. And um, we got to figure that out. I would say the second piece is, like, when we talked about this last time, like, when I went and met with rural Democratic county chairs the last few months, like, the fact that if they got a $500 grant, that they were like dancing through the hall of their office that they were lucky enough to have one and felt like they'd won the lottery just speaks to what we're up against. I mean, the average consult Democratic Party consultant probably gets five hundred dollars an hour. So we've mm-hmm. got to figure out how to support these groups. And I think one of the things if you look at my take on this election is de- rural Democrats did better because there was a backlash to Dobbs and right. what made. But that didn't work in every state. And I think if you start to dig down into the states, it's in the states where there's been an investment in rural infrastructure, an investment in rural parties, an investment mm-hmm. in communications in rural communities. So Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania is just three examples. 
have decided to do that. They've decided to do that in terms of kind of local community organizations to do that work. But the state party, Ben Wickler, certainly decided to do that in Wisconsin. But you said the Whitmer campaign decided to do it. And Fetterman said from jump, we're not going to win the rural vote, but we're going to contest for it. Fetterman didn't flip a single rural county in Wisconsin, but he improved his rural vote share by 2.4% over Biden. You extrapolate that across the state, that's a bunch of votes. And over in his part of the state, he did even better. You go to Wisconsin, Tony Evers re-flipped back a bunch of states that were what we call Obama to Trump counties, where a bunch of them had been going for Democrats for 40 years. They went to Trump often by 20%, but Evers started to win some of those back. So, but you go to other parts of the country where we didn't invest in rural and the numbers got worse. Yeah. Why do you think they do get better? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, at how they flip the state houses in Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Obviously what Gretchen Whitmer did flipping, you know, Benzie and Grand yeah. Traverse counties. Is it, is it that they're, they're actually going out there and going for Republican voters or are they trying to reach people who are rural and just don't show up? I think this I think we undervalue existing rural Democrats. Um, and I think there are more out there than we think. It's not a super fun role in in a, in rural life to be the visible Democrat in a lot of communities. I mean, you can get ostracized for it. You might even get vandalized for it. Um, when I've been on the road meeting with rural county chairs, they're like, we need yard signs. They flip out over yard signs because they need to create a critical mass of visibility. So people will be like, you know what, maybe we can win. Like maybe it's safe out here to be more public in this. And I think if you look, just Pennsylvania is one example, 83% of rural Biden voters from 2020 showed up for Fetterman. Only 73% of Trump's rural voters showed up for Oz. So there, I do think turnout is a, is a key thing. And because we assume there are no rural Democrats, we don't invest in it. Yeah, I think persuasion and moving the swing vote is important, but I think we undervalue the people that are already with us. Totally fascinating. Let me ask you about um, Diamond Staten Williams, who was running for uh, House District 73. This is one of my favorite stories of the entire year that that hasn't gotten a, a lot of notice. You talk about it. Tell us a bit about the group Down Home North Carolina. They're an organizing group, right? Yeah, they're one of the most hopeful things to me that happened after Trump got elected. So a set of folks um, decided that they were going to build something in North Carolina. Um, They wanted it to be multiracial from jump, including poor white people, black people and Latino people. They picked uh, a number of rural counties and some kind of post-industrial textile mill counties. that used to be a big textile mill industry in the Piedmont of North Carolina. and they actually intentionally organized in some place where there was visible rise in white nationalist organizing. And so they launched, you know, after Trump got elected. But in House District 73, um, which is, is both includes kind of suburban Charlotte and then, you know, rural communities outside of that, this local community organizing group knocked on 35,000 doors, had 8,000 conversations, and elected Diamond Staten Williams by 425 votes. I think if you take this local community organizing, that's, right. You, t- yeah. you take them off the table. But this wasn't any house race by beating the Republican and electing Diamond Staten Williams. They blocked the Republican supermajority, a local rural community organiz- organizing group that's existed now for five years, did that by getting out in the community, knocking on doors. But to be honest, I don't think anybody else was going to knock on. So it's just a, and these groups are popping up all over the country. You got Citizen mm-hmm. Action of Wisconsin up in Wisconsin. We the people in Michigan. 
there's a group called Hoosier Action in Indiana, New Jersey organized. They're showing up all across the place. And so I think it's one of the more hopeful things that's happening. And these groups aren't going to get smaller. I mean, between young people, minorities and women, these groups are not going to get weaker in their power and influence. No, I mean, I think they are in it and they know it's also a long fight that they got to build for the next 20 years if we're going to do this. So they're one of the things that makes me most hopeful. You talk in the piece of Newsweek about how Democrats don't have to win rural. They just have to lose better. I love that. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think. If you look at the 2008 election, President Obama won 43 percent of the rural vote for Hillary. It went down to about 34 percent. But then Biden pushed it up really only in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. But that's actually all they needed to do to become president. And yeah. so I think that to me, that is like losing better. We actually happen to lose even better in, by improving those numbers in this election. So I think. Yes, we need to run up the score in urban areas. There are certain suburban areas that play well for us, some small cities. But I think in the rural vote, if we can move from, you know, 70-30 to 65-35 in a lot of states, that's enough to bring home victory. What do we need to keep reminding? Why should we keep reminding Democrats about what happened in 2018 when the Republican Party tried to repeal the ACA. You know, we, we talk about how Trump never had a plan. We talk about how Nancy Pelosi held the caucus together. We talk about how McCain saved the Republican Party by saving the ACA. But we don't really talk about the effect that effort had on the midterm election of 2018. Yeah, I'm confused as to why we don't. Um, I feel like very few people, I think, know these numbers that the biggest swing voters in that election were were rural white voters. And I think maybe people don't want to talk about it. But I think we've got to I mean, being on this show, having conversations about it. And I think looking at this trend, what you saw in this election and in a way, Republicans were the governing party in terms of the Supreme Court. And then they took something away from people. And I think Every time that we see the Republican Party take something away from people, we've got to know that's an opportunity and seize it. And then the other thing I'd say moving forward is we've got, you know, trillions of dollars through the some of the recently passed and, and Biden signed policy that right now we need to be taking a victory lap and make sure folks in rural communities know there's eleven billion dollars alone is going to move mm-hmm. to rural electric cooperatives. Forty right. million people in the country get their electricity from rural electric cooperatives. It'll make people's electricity cheaper and it's going to make it cleaner. Um, but I, I don't think most people know about it. So I think one of the big priorities in the next 18 months is to make sure people do. I mean, Donald Trump literally delayed stimulus checks till he could get his signature printed on them, whereas yeah. Joe Biden brings about the lowest childhood poverty in American history in 2021. This infrastructure plan is going to probably start putting a lot of people to work and we're going to be seeing a lot of construction and repairs next year. Seniors are going to start paying a lot less for drugs thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, when are the Democrats going to start promoting their own successes as much as the Republicans promote Hunter Biden's laptop? I mean, I'm a community organizer and just in kind of retail local community organizing, you want a victory, you flyer the neighborhood. And you make sure everybody knows about it. I think, like, what's the federal strategy for for the Democratic Party and for the Biden administration? I, you know, they should be on radio. They should it should be on billboards. It should be running digital ads. I hope that's going to happen. I, I can't imagine if, if it doesn't happen. We just squandered one of the biggest opportunities to move right? people, not oh. for an election, but maybe for years. 
So what does the Democratic Party need to do to be smart about this? A lot of smart people in the party, of course, but in terms of rebuilding what you call rebuilding the Democratic Party's rural infrastructure, what does that look like? I would start with identifying the strongest rural county chairs. They're, they're, you know, warriors out there. We talked about it last time, serious talent, but operating on a nickel and a dime, like start with them. And I think then figure out how to move paid organizers. They need paid organizers to do year round organizing, to build Mm -hmm. a base and do all of that. And then I think you've got to figure out how are you running like media campaigns, taking a victory lap on the policy you just won, but also pounding the opposition when they overreach. I think we've got to figure out how to do that. And then I think there's a you know new report, I'll, I'll tweet it out here, but from the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative that they interviewed 50 winning rural Democratic candidates and pulled a lot of lessons for them. A lot of it's like being super active in the community, not only knocking on Democratic Party doors, but knocking on every door. That's right. Showing up and doing things like blood drives, food drives, Smart. you know, distributing masks in pandemics. And I think there's a there's a movement towards that. But if you look at this report and see what that stuff works and then yeah. people start to be like, I don't even really care what party you're with. If you do that kind of stuff, like I'm going to vote for you. I mean, we just saw the New York Times article last month that the Biden White House was so committed to getting shots in the arms of rural black voters in this country that now African-Americans are no longer the hardest hit demographic by COVID. We keep getting these these proof over and over again that if you work on it, if you devote the resources and the energy and the compassion, you'll see results. Yeah, I mean. Come on. People just want people just want a little leg up, a little help, and they're going to remember who delivered it. But we got to deliver it and then make sure they know that we were the ones that did it. Well, so now all eyes, of course, as you point out at the end of your piece in Newsweek are on Georgia as Warnock is going up against Herschel Walker. Now, God bless Stacey Abrams. She really built an incredible infrastructure in the state of of Georgia by not going after conservatives and saying you were suckered by Trump. She never tried to do it. Her whole strategy was to go for people who haven't voted, have turned 18 since the last time, or have become citizens since the last time. What are your thoughts on what we're witnessing in Georgia? And are you hopeful? Oh, I am. I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful about this election, definitely. And long term, I think I watched, you know, one of the Abrams Kemp debates. It was a good reminder that our job is harder, especially in a state like Georgia. Like, their job is like keep things the same, scare the hell out of you. And if we just go back to the way things were, that's actually an easier job. We're yeah. selling something that is futuristic, that is hopeful and includes a critique of some of our current institutions. So you're watching the debate like, well, she has to perform twice as well as he does. Yeah. In this the, debate, the, in this state. The person who's decoding the lies has to work twice as hard. Yeah. Like, I mean, I like it's easier to just critique all police instead of say, hey, there's some stuff, you know, we talked about this last time. There's some stuff that can be improved that would actually make us all safer. Like that's a that's a harder needle to thread. And so I just think that's important to remember. But I think Warnock did very well with the, especially the rural black vote, which is, is quite large in Georgia. Groups have been building infrastructure there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just think Georgia Democrats are more motivated by Warnock than they are by Walker. And so I, I you know, yeah, I, it's not a slam dunk, but I feel hopeful about that race. When you think about the fact that, you know, a couple hundred thousand Republicans showed up and stood online to vote for Kemp, but didn't vote for Walker. I don't know if that same motivation is going to be there for turnout. We 
Yeah, of course, I, we can't I'm, believe in polls ever again. Polls are completely useless now. But it does seem like this same spirit has taken root in Georgia and that Stacey Abrams may have lost the battle, but may win the war. I think that's a perfect way to say it. Well, let me close with the closing of your uh, your excellent piece of Newsweek. If we learned one thing from this election, it is that we should not write people off, not a party, not any particular type of voter. This election was not a new low for rural Democrats. Instead, it may signal a new beginning. How can people who are listening to this conversation and want to be part of the solution help on the local and statewide and national level? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll tweet some stuff out and tag you, but I think Please. that... Um, I think everybody's got to look at themselves as an organizer first. I mean, I just think versus like hoping somebody else is going to do the job. So I think, I mean, that's why I write this fundamentals of organizing column on Substack. Um, this trend towards deep canvassing that's taking off all across the country. The organization I used to run, People's Action, has had trained thousands of people in this election how to like have conversations with people that don't help them get their back up, but move people. I think we're going to need a generation to do that. And I think we got to figure out how to invest in our rural Democratic Party leaders. They are out there fighting the good fight, but doing it with duct tape and bungee cords. And we got to make sure they have the resources to get it done. You can follow George Gale uh, at George Gale, G-O-E-H-L, and do yourself a favor and follow his Fundamentals for Organizing Substack and the podcast, The Next Move. Sir, it is such a a pleasure to have you here. Every time you come on, our listeners uh, just love it. Please, please don't be a stranger and, and come back again soon. Hey, it was great to be here. Thanks, John. Right on. Thank you. Have a great evening. Quick break. When we come back, it's going to be your calls all the way until midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. We are just getting warmed up. No, we're not going to play the Kanye tape on Alex Jones. Yes, we do want to talk about it and hear your thoughts. 866-997-GRIT. Let's get back to the calls. Uh, Jan in Pittsburgh, thank you for your patience. Welcome. Ian, I'm sorry, Ian in Pittsburgh. Ian in Pittsburgh, welcome. Oh, hi, John. Uh, hey. Long time uh, waiting, but definitely well worth it for everything. Listen, I, I everyone, this man waited so long, and I mispronounced his name because I read it wrong on the screen. So you are uh, our most exalted caller tonight, and uh, you have my most <laughs> humble apologies and my gratitude for your incredible patience. And I love Pittsburgh, no, too. No, What's on your mind? Well, I just wanted to back up. I'm, I'm a new viewer to the show, so uh, please forgive me. But whoever it is in the booth there who was talking about in an ideal circumstances, we'd need an LBJ to kind of sort out this strike situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who you are, man, but 100%. Like, we definitely, I think, needed a different approach when it came to approaching the, uh, the way in which this entire thing seemed to be negotiated. I've spoken to many friends of mine who work in the rail industry. Tell me the, the way the way the perception is is that it seems that they always are the ones who have to get. Why is it that labor is consistently the ones that have to make the cuts here? Like it, it's never the management, it's never the corporation. It's always comes down to the little guy, so to speak, that has to end up taking these cuts. Back. Always, they, always. They were really, really hoping that Biden would find a way to leverage this. You know, and, and somehow find a way to like sort this out for them. I know. And I know there's a lot there's a lot of talk about a wildcat strike right now. I'm not entirely certain if that's going to be the result, but there's a lot of views that like this is kind of a betrayal of everything. And 
it's very hard to conceptualize. I, I'm at the point now, like, personally, I'm almost thinking, like, they, the Democrats need kind of, like, since, you know, Biden's position in the upcoming election seems maybe a little bit dubious given his age and stuff. But yeah. that said, I think he's still doing a great job, of course, in most other things. But I'm thinking we almost need, like, a Huey Long type of approach here, somebody who's willing to use every stop within the law in yeah. order to, you know, really get some policies done that, frankly, should have been done, like, a long, long time ago, like, a no, long time ago. I, compl- I, I agree everything you're saying. And listen, I, I appreciate the difficult position Joe Biden is in, right? 30 years ago when he was in the same position with a railway strike, he said he'd always be so pro-union. But now he's not just one senator. He's the one president. And he realizes, OK, I've got to look at a bigger picture here. And I, I, I appreciate all that. And I also appreciate the fact that you're right. It is always the working guy who has to sacrifice for the greed of the rich guy. But I, I also don't want to put all this blame on Joe Biden. This thing failed 52 to 43, eight votes shy of the 60 votes they needed to adopt the amendment on seven days of paid sick leave. Joe Biden yeah. is fighting and failing. The Republicans mostly are fighting so hard against this. And also, you know, I, I read something great earlier today. The media will say to these rail workers, are your are your sick days worth hurting the economy? But they'll never go to a billionaire and say, is your greed worth hurting the U.S. economy? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's we talk always, about the greed always... of working people who want to have paid sick days, but we won't talk about the greed of an industry that had $26 billion in profit and can't spare 1.5%, not of the budget, just of the profits. My, my, my God, yeah. Like, I mean, and, and if you, like, I, I can't encourage, like, people who are listening right now enough, if it please look up the conditions that these people have been working and look at like they they are not only are these companies like endangering their own workers in their health and their mental state they're also endangering the greater public because they're trying to run fewer crews on longer hours where these people don't have the proper amount of rest first of all secondly they're running these longer trains which the infrastructure physically cannot support and they're putting i mean and this is for example like pittsburgh city of bridges right we got a rail bridge called the Fort Wayne Railroad Bridge in downtown Pittsburgh. It was finished in 1904. Norfolk Southern has been under fire for like the past 25 years to uh. completely revitalize this bridge and like redo it. And they're running right. double stack container cars and natural gas trains oh, over great. this bridge through downtown <sighs> Pittsburgh. And it's like, and this is all because of this management is like pushing, they're cutting, you know, uh, employment stuff, and they're making it harder to employ new workers, and the turnover rate is insane. All the while, they're refusing to invest in this infrastructure to make, you know, their super highly demanded, you know, scheduling work. It's just absolutely bonkers. I know, I know. And listen, and I, I share the frustration, right? But I do caution everyone about allowing the conventional wisdom to heap all the blame on Joe Biden for this when the real villains are the railroad barons and the Republican Party who doesn't care about Biden fought and lost for these people. I'm not going to blame him more than I blame the people who fought against these people. And this is the whole history of the country back at what was 18 in the 1870s. The Great Railroad Strike, 100,000 workers had their wages cut several times in a year. Where I'm That's at. right. I mean, the, for and a they, while, and, and, the unions actually ran the stations. That's right. But what did they do? The but, got run out of town. But what did they? But what did the railroad barons do after a hundred thousand people went on strike because their wages were being cut so many times? They got the national guard to come in here and started killing people. I mean, they killed like a hundred people yeah. in 1877. I think it was. Yeah. I just want to say one last thing, too, which is that uh, while I, I definitely understand Joe Biden's position and all this and stuff, 
I, I do think we also like uh, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Tom Hartman's new book, you know, about neoliberalism or anything, but mm-hmm. he talked great links in that book. I actually just used it for a research paper I'm writing for college, believe it or not. So I, I went down the rabbit hole uh, just the wow. other day on this. But um, he talks in that book about uh, how the ALC and uh, Al Fromm really, really, really corporatized the Democratic Party and didn't really do much to really prop up labor unions after the Reagan presidency. And Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, we can put a lot of this on Reagan for initially, you know, really gutting the unions and really kneecapping them. But we can also put a lot of it at the hands of the more corporatist wing of the Democratic Party, which got into power in the 90s and said, you know what? I know. Let's not work on rebuilding them. Yes, and we and we have to go ahead and look. I fought for those neoliberals against Bob Dole, but I'll call them out for it. But but again, as disappointing as it is that Democrats couldn't pull this off, all two hundred seven of the House Republicans who voted against paid sick leave for railroad workers have unlimited sick days every federal holiday in the year off. The bad guys are yeah. still the Republicans here, and it's still the railroad barons, same as it ever was. True. Democrats True. failed to solve a problem that was created by other people. Yep. Pop quiz. But yep. it's still disgusting. It's a frustrating situation. <laughs> it's quiz. totally disgusting. You I guys mean, probably and, know the answer, but if you had to guess, off the top of your head, the five Democratic senators who voted against the bill to block the railroad strike... It's because it's kind of who you would think would vote. Yeah, right? there's only. I mean, Mansion Mansion voted against it because I did bring no, up no, no, I did no, bring no, up I the Republicans say, I mean, who the five Democrats who voted in Senate who voted against the one that passed. Oh yeah, who? So it's Bernie, of course. Right. Warren. Hmm. Merkley. Hmm. Gillibrand, and Hickenlooper. Yeah. Right on. Uh, it's infuriating. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like, what what do you do? You know, but at the same time, like, I understand the position he's in. Also, you know, I, I know I, I kind of had to push back on some of my buddies who were in the industry because they, they were, you know, they were very quick to throw Biden into the fire. But at the same time, I was yeah. like, listen, it is before Christmas. But then again, like their their angle is, well, the, you know, the Republicans have also been giving them crap for the economy for the greater part of a year and a half, if not more. So it's like, you know, what more is there to lose from labor's well, perspective? And he, and he guess, screwed but. no matter what. He screwed no matter what, because if the strike actually happened, it would be devastating for our economy. It would be devastating for Americans at Christmas, and it would be devastating for the, for the Democratic Party. I mean, it's just... And, now it's, and if they do go on a wildcat strike, it's going to be doubly bad because the economy is going to tank still. And he didn't side with labor. So it's like a lose-lose, you know? Yes, but but again, just keep telling everyone it was 43 senators that denied rail workers seven days of paid sick leave. It wasn't Joe Biden that did it. These people make yes. 175 yes. grand a year. They get driven around in, in, in SUVs. They have health care that we pay for. And 43 of them voted against only seven days for workers. They have the gall to call essential. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm mad, but it's it. My, my anger is not focused on Joe Biden at all, and I'll fight anybody who tries to blame him for this. Yeah, and, and it, it, sh- it also isn't right that this should all be, like, why is it only up to Democrats to stand up for the working guy? Because there was a point where, like, you know, Lincoln, if you go all the way back to the time when mm-hmm. Republicans might have kind of been pro-labor, I mean, That's he right. said that, you know, you, you have to respect labor before capital, because if it weren't it's labor, more important than labor, capital, there would be no capital, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. They, he what said a, it. What a far way they have fallen. 
Oh, please. It's, they're not even the party of quail anymore. It's so sad. But, <laughs> you, you know, and I, and I give credit. I mean, I, I, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, John Kennedy, and Mike Braun joined the Democrats in voting yes on this. Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders fist bumped at one point. Um, so, you know, at least Republicans are pretending to care. But for them, it's a win-win. They don't care about working people, by and large. They care about seeming to care about working people. And they'd love to see a strike cripple the economy because they can hang that on Joe Biden's head the same way they're hanging Donald Trump's high gas prices on Joe Biden's head. Thank you so much for the call, yeah. Ian. I'm sorry you waited on hold so long. I won't let no that happen problem. again. Thank you so much for taking it. Thank you so much. 866-997-4748. It is a love fest out there. Let me tell you. <sighs> Pit Doc in Ohio. How are you, sir? Sorry, John. When I talked to you and Keith last night, I forgot the one major point I wanted to leave you with. Please. And everything like that. Now, I did not see the show on hear the show on Tuesday. I did okay. listen to almost the whole show last night just to hear okay. if you saw, talk about the subject. And you know, when you got you got Elmer going to jail, you got Trump maybe being indicted, you got a rail strike, you got all signs of uh, important political stuff. But let me ask you this question: Have you ever seen a bear snort a rail of coke off a severed leg? <laughs> Before this week, I hadn't. I swear to God, I never laugh. I haven't laughed at a trailer that hard in years. I mean, this is the best animal. Uh, this is the best animal comedy since Jaws. So <laughs> now, hang on. Jaws is not a comedy. I, I think Jaws is a western. But I, I do think um, if you're looking for something like uh, snakes on a plane meets Sharknado, Cocaine Bear could do it. Yeah, I mean, I just started laughing. Well, first of all, Jaws. That's some bad, bad area. But still. Uh, with everything being so crappy, something that's so dumb but funny just kind of lifts your spirits. <laughs> well, I hope the movie's good. God bless Ray Liotta. He's in it. And who doesn't yeah. love watching a CGI bear? Ever since I saw one seriously fuck up Leonardo DiCaprio and he won an Oscar, uh, I'm like, great, let's let's bring more CGI bears out to terrorize people. And if it has more cocaine, so much the better. I, I said when I first heard the cocaine bear, I thought Don Jr. had been given his indigenous name. So I was totally wrong on this. <laughs> Take it easy, John. Take it easy, Doctor. 866-997-4740. So. It is based in nineteen eighty five. There was a some guy parachuted and a bunch of coke went wound in the forest and I believe a a bear ate some of the cocaine um, and started yeah. hanging out in bars and trying to pick up girls with a bag of it. I mean didn't eat uh, they found the bear dead because it ate seventy four pounds of cocaine. Wow. That's like Randy Quaid numbers. Like 866-997-4748. <laughs> Stephen in Kentucky, how are you? Well, darling, I actually, this is uh, Lady Bird Johnson calling tonight. And oh, I, my. I add a few of my remarks, if I could. Thank you. I, We've been trying to book you for a while, uh, Mrs. Johnson. Oh, you're know, you're a tough get. Well, I know, honey. I actually have been floating on a white cloud. And I've been having martinis with Elvis Presley, and we've just been talking up a storm, I tell you. You just can't even imagine, darling. Well, tonight, and I just wanted to tell all the callers that I've been so uh, glad to hear tonight, 
bless your little hearts for invoking the name of my Lyndon into the conversation. I tell you, I am. you just mentioned Randa Quaid. You know, he played by Lyndon in 1987, that wonderful Patti Lapone. That's right. That's did. right. And she, and I tell you, I was just so humbled by the experience when she came to visit me at the LBJ Ranch. You know, she played... Um, Evita Perone, and I thought to myself, oh, honey, after playing Evita Perone, you playing me, oh, I tell you, that was just a wonderful experience, I tell you. <laughs> I wanted to the mention... Be- the best part of this call, Chris, is I'm pretty convinced he's also dressed as Lady Bird Johnson with the full makeup and the pearls as well. Go on, please, Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> no, honey, I'm wearing, actually, I'm wearing my inaugural gown from 1965, Neiman Marcus, the owner of that was the one who designed it for me at the time. And I had to take off my mink coat that I had. You know, I used to own a lot of them minks I did when I was uh, alive at the LBJ Ranch. <laughs> M- Mr. Fugel saying, I wanted to mention tonight, I had called because last month we didn't have a chance to acknowledge something. And that was, we had, uh, this month was the 45th anniversary of an event that very dear to my heart. And it was the first time that the U.S. government ever acknowledged uh, women's rights. And that was the National Women's Conference in Houston, Texas. Ah. And I made remarks about this event. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I am going to say that uh, at the time, my uh, my good my girlfriends Betty Ford and Rosalind Carter also <laughs> made uh, some remarks as well. Mm-hmm. But mine were civil rights legislation, including passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, will once and for all prevail because America the Beautiful's consummation of timeless justice can trace her roots back to a majestic inheritance as God's liberated children, despite those who egregiously let the verdant grass grow under their feet. The pernicious eternal rest of egalitarianism momentarily commences when meritorious heroes and heroines inhabit Mother Earth resign themselves to monstrosities, <laughs> coupled with three-ring circuses over providential efflorescence. During, jo- during the Johnson administration, Lyndon and I were simpatico mm-hmm. in the shared coup de madre, immortalized mm-hmm. woman power reigns priceless. Thank you. <laughs> and Thank you. so that, that was my remark for that. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm dazzled. Uh, thank you. I, I, a part of me really believes that you had that committed to memory and just recited it off the top of your head. So I'm very, very impressed. Well, I, before I go, I wanted to mention, too, for a moment, um, I wonder about uh, Herschel Walker's campaign theme song. I know Mr. Uh, Matt Getz uh, had Thank Heaven for Little Girls. Does uh, uh, Herschel Walker, is he going to be using Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight? I'm just going to say <laughs> I, I think we have done it. We, we have done the most broad possible spectrum of pop culture references in one phone call, Stephen. I'm deeply proud of you. Thank you so much. Well, Mrs. Johnson just wanted to visit. You know, her birthday would be this month, too. And you all were talking about AOC. And she wanted me to remind people it was my mother, mother nature crusade 
as they talk about Al Gore all the time and AOC, but I was the one who helped also. And people forget that nowadays when you all were mentioning my husband. Mm, I was I was true. co-president as well. I was, you know, I had a lot of influence. Herbert, well, uh, Hubert Humphrey used to say I had balls of steel. You're 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 now lapsing back into first person, Lady Bird Johnson. I just want you to know is is Lady Bird in the room with us right now, they, Stephen? Is is Lady Bird here right now? I can never. He Stephen disappears. Lady Bird picks up the phone. I, I don't know where Stephen begins and Lady Bird ends. Sometimes. I can't well, tell if he's playing her or shucks well. if he's playing him. What's you had, that? You're the one who mentioned quail earlier, so I guess it was just the mention of birds. You know, that just wanted to. Well, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to call your house and give you uh, give you my Maryland quail impression sometime when you least expect it. Oh so. God, Stephen, <laughs> thank you. 